Good morning, Brook Hills. Great to see all of you together. We're going to worship God through His Word. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, and a huge Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, those of you who are guests with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here to uh, worship God with us as we think about the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth and all that that means for us, the significance and relevance of his coming to the world. So we're going to read Isaiah 35 in just a moment. Before we do that, if you've got your worship guide, let me invite you to get that out because at the top of your worship guide, there's a statement that I hope will kind of orient us to the passage before we read it. So at the top of your worship guide, it's this this statement, the message of both Christmas and the book of Isaiah are the same. Your God will come and save you. That's, that's the big idea. That's the big idea of this passage. That's the big idea of Christmas. Remember, uh, the angel tells Joseph and Mary not to just flip through the name books and find something cute, right? The, the angel says, I'm going to tell you the name. Name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. In other words, the name Jesus meant God saves. Name him that so everybody knows why he's here. He's here to save. And we're going to see those words in Isaiah, your God will come to save you. Isaiah 35 is an Advent text. Advent just means arrival. So this passage tells us what God starts doing when he gets here. When God arrives, this is what he starts doing. He starts saving. Now, now bear in mind, before we read this passage, that the people who originally heard these words were people whose story, so much of the Israelites' history was played out in exile, played out when they were wandering through the wilderness and sojourning in different places and living in tents and in caves and right wandering people. So, so that's a reality back there in the Old Testament. But, but even when you come over into the New Testament, this is interesting, I think, is you know, when you read the book of Hebrews, for example, and the writer to the Hebrews says that wasn't just the people of God's story in the Old Testament. Really, their story was a parable of the whole narrative of every believer who is yearning for home, who's yearning for a home beyond this world, trusting in promises that will take us out of this world to another place that God is preparing for his people. In other words, the writer of the Hebrews says that journey is the journey of all God's faithful people throughout the ages. I love how Eugene Peterson captures this in his rendition of Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16. He writes this, each one of these people of faith died not yet having in hand what was promised, but still believing. How did they do it? They saw it way off in the distance, waved their greeting, and accepted the fact that they were transients in this world. People who live this way make it plain that they're looking for their, I love these words, true home. If they were homesick for the old country, they could have gone back anytime they wanted, but they were after a far better country than that heaven country. You can see why God is so proud of them and has a city waiting for them. And so to a people all too familiar with exile, these words that we're about to read would have felt like 
Christmas. This sounds like Christmas morning. Isaiah 35 is an Advent text. It tells us when God gets here, he starts doing this stuff. The first Advent, the first arrival of Jesus, he started doing these things. And when he comes back a second time at the return of Jesus, he finishes, he completes, he realizes these things. Follow along with me. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Just stop for a second and think about what did John say about when Jesus arrived. We beheld his glory. We saw his glory. That's what the incarnation was all about. So keep reading. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals in their lairs there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there and a way It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there. No vicious beast will go upon it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the redeemed of the Lord will return. Here they come, coming home. And come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. That's the sound of Christmas to exiles. You think about how often Christmas and the idea of home are tied together. In the Bible, also in pop culture, like even, even here you turn on the radio, you listen to Christmas songs, and so often home and Christmas are tied together. So you, you can hear Perry Como crooning and he's singing, there's no place like home for the holidays. Or a song that I heard when I was a kid, Amy Grant sang a song called Tender Tennessee Christmas. And she said, I know there's more snow up in Colorado than my roof will ever see, but a tender Tennessee Christmas is the only Christmas for me. Or the song many of us might be familiar with, I'll be home for Christmas. I've always kind of wondered what that last line means because it has a turn Toward the end, right? It says, I'll be home for Christmas. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. And I always kind of wondered, what is, it, what is that about? I thought you're going to be home, and then the last phrase actually says, you're not. Well, it turns out it was, it was written in 1943, and it was written from the perspective of World War II soldiers who wouldn't be home for Christmas except in their dreams, Make sense of it. They're, they're, the song is written from the perspective of, I wish I could be home. I wish I could see it and be there, gathered around with family and friends. It was written from that perspective. I remember watching a, a holiday commercial several years ago, and there was a, a wife who was waiting at the, the bottom of an escalator, and her, her husband was coming back from active duty, and he's coming down the escalator, and he's got his bags and all, he's geared up, and 
And she's there at the, the bottom and she's just saying, come here. And she's laughing and she's crying at the same time and she's just saying, come here, come here, just bristling with joy and excitement. Christmas, friends, is God's plan by which he says to a broken and tired and sinful world, and God is saying through Christmas, come here, come home, come to me. It's the great desire of our Old Testament forebears and ancestors in the faith. You ask David, King David in the Old Testament, what's the one thing you want for Christmas? He says, here's one thing, one thing have I asked that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on his beauty. I just want one thing. I want to be home with God. The psalmist wrote songs about this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. That is, when we were sojourning in the desert, you were our dwelling place. You were the tent in the middle of all the tents. When we were wandering, you were there. You made that place home, inhospitable as the desert was. You made it home. Remember the words of the great Christmas carol we were just singing a moment ago. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until, until Christmas morning, until the Son of God appears. So Isaiah 35 is a come home text, it's a Christmas text. These are the things God starts doing when he arrives. Number one, he gives us life. Life is God's gift when he arrives That first point, you can just mark this in right now while you're there. God brings life out of death. God brings life out of death. It's one of the first things on his resume. He loves giving life where there had only been death. This is vivid image right there in the first two verses. Look at it. Verse one, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. What a vivid image that would have been for these people. Desert wastelands blossoming. Color in the desert, right? Barren land singing for joy. This is this incredible Paradox, the tension of death giving way to life. You know, Facebook does something interesting. Maybe you've experienced it before. I don't know how it triggers it. I'm not sure my Facebook account has ever done it before, but it can do this thing where it just generates your life story of the past year. And it just assembles the pictures, apparently, that you've posted that year, and it does a retrospective. It says, we're just going to introduce you to all the places you've been, all the people you've been hanging out with this past year, and it sets it to music, and then it just plays it and shows you slides of the past 12 months of your life, or however long. If my, um, if my Facebook generated that from the last few moments and months of my life, you would see multiple pictures in which the background is the same. It's a gym because I feel like I am, for the past few months, with basketball and with volleyball before that, I feel like, I told Paula, I said, I'm going to die in a gym. If I die right now, you're going to find me in a gym. I'm always in gyms. I feel like I'm taking a tour to gyms all across Alabama. We're taking road trips. We're ending up in gyms and bleachers and places all over the state watching games, right? Well, if Israel had that retrospective, Let's say Facebook did a retrospective on the entire history of Israel. There would be a prominent background over the course of centuries, and that background that constantly is repeated is desert. 
It's almost like Israel could say, well, there we are again in the desert, right? There we are. There's the sand. That in the background, those would be, that would be Egyptian. Uh, our stay there in Egypt for 430 years, that's what's back behind us, right? And we stayed there for a while. That, that particular picture, that's the Assyrian desert. That's the Babylonian desert, right? So all these different places. Look, that's us in front of Mount Sinai. So they'd just be taking you through these pictures, a retrospective of the life and history of God's people in the Old Testament. And the one thing that's in common, photo to photo, is sand. <laughs> they couldn't get away from the stuff. They had sand between their toes for 500 years. So God's promise in this passage would not have been lost on them when he says that sand is gonna become blooming flowers and he's saying to them, picture Carmel, picture Sharon, some of the luscious places in your part of the world. Picture that, that's what God's gonna do. Look, and by the way, that, that's, not, um, that's not a promise about the topography of the ancient Near East. That's not a promise about, that's not a meteorological report this is what's going to happen sort of on the ground. Physically, plants are going to look way, way better these days. No, it's, it's an actually, it's a report, it's a promise about the people. In other words, Israel is going to flourish. God's people are going to rejoice with joy and singing. Not, the, not just the plants. The people will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. In other words, it's a promise that's saying to a dry, hopeless, exiled people, you're going to see water, and you're going to see color and life, because God's going to break in and interrupt your story. What, what's this have to do with Christmas? What's this have to do with the arrival of Messiah? Well, you remember Jesus comes on the scene, and, and what does he say? He says, just so everybody knows, I'm here to, to give life, and life abundantly, the other one has come to steal and kill and destroy. I'm here to bring life. Jesus came to make the deserts bloom. This is in your notes. Jesus is the giver of life. What did John say about the significance of the arrival of the Christ? He said, in him was life. And his life was the light of men. It was light breaking into a dark world. It was life breaking into death. Friend, Christianity isn't a concept it's not just another religion lined up alongside all these other religions. It's not a set of bare doctrinal facts that we're supposed to check off and subscribe to. No, it's a resurrection. It's new life breaking in, right? What, what's the Apostle Paul say about the story of every believer, every person who's trusted in Christ? He says, I'll tell you your story. Here's your story, Ephesians 2. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, God has made alive together with Christ. That's the story of the gospel. That's what Christmas came to effect, to trigger in the world. Isaiah 35 is God promising the gift of life to those who trust Messiah. Second, it's God promising the gift of strength. Strength. I love how the English Standard Version translates verse three. It says this, it'll be up on the screen. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Just look at those words there in verse four. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. There are these moments in the Bible where the Bible tells us what we're supposed to say 
to each other. Isn't that wonderful? Have you obeyed this verse (laughs) this week? Have you said to other believers, have you said to those with anxious hearts, hey, hey, be strong, don't fear. God tells me I'm supposed to say that to you because you're anxious, and this is what God says to anxious hearts. I love it when God tells us what to say to one another. Look, in one way or another, I want to say that every Sunday. Why? Because there are tired people in here every Sunday. There are struggling believers hanging on by a thread threadbare in their faith. And what does God want you to hear? Be strong. Do not fear. I've got you. My promises are going to wrap their arms around you. Look, there are people in here on any given Sunday in this room, even now, might look great outwardly, but inside are a wreck, are falling apart. And will we come together Sunday after Sunday and remember that our God is the one who gives strength to the weary? It's what he does. He loves giving strength to the weary. You know, last year we we walked through a series called the We Are series and we looked at eight distinctives from scripture, eight things that we want to pursue as a church. Here's what they were. We abide biblically. We gather faithfully. We connect meaningfully. We invest sacrificially. We welcome graciously. We engage locally. We reach globally and we risk intentionally. You know what this verse reminds me of is that number five. We welcome graciously. Think about that. That's something that we pursue as a church. Ask yourself the question, do we? Do we welcome graciously? How do we do Are we skillful in the art of gospel compassion? Are we skillful in the art of gospel kindness? What am I asking? Does it smell like grace in here? Or does it smell like a Christian sweatshop? So everybody doing your chores? Let's make sure we're all doing our chores because that's the most important thing. Does Does our life and ministry to one another sound like we've been marinating in Jesus' words, blessed are the merciful. In other words, blessed are those who aren't quick on the trigger. Blessed are those who remember. Here's the story. Here's my life story. God has been patient with me. That's what it means for us to embrace this blessed are the merciful dynamic. Look, when people get around us as members of this church, do they leave feeling beaten down, or do they leave encouraged to press on in faith, press on in hope, trust in the unbreakable promises of God? Do they leave crushed by chores or awed by the grace of God? It's a question for us to reflect on as a church. You look at this imagery in verse 5. Is this something we're trying, right? This is beautiful. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Who doesn't want to go to a church like that, right? The lame leaping like deers. The tongue of the mute singing for joy. There's a church ready to minister to a broken, needy world. What did God do when he got here? When he got here, it was Christmas for the needy. 
It was Christmas for the poor and the oppressed and the weak and the hungry and the prisoner and the blind and the deaf. It was Christmas all day, every day. And he'd walk through town and he'd preach the gospel of a kingdom of good news and then he'd just start handing out gifts. Bring all the lepers to me. And he'd just start blessing and saving and rescuing and healing. This is in your notes. Jesus demonstrated the power of the coming kingdom. What was it, the first advent of Jesus? It was a preview window. It was a a trailer of of coming events. When Jesus comes again in his return, you're gonna see this all day, every day, in all directions. It's the only thing you'll see. But Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a preview window of the powers of the age to come. John the Baptist had a moment, right? John the Baptist, I find this encouraging. John the Baptist struggled with doubt. John the Baptist, right? Jesus said he's... The greatest prophet ever born of woman is John the Baptist. John the Baptist got the unique pleasure and privilege of introducing the Savior to the world. Behold, rolls out the carpet, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he's saying that now, but check him out a few days later when he's in prison. And he's saying, I'm not sure we got the right one. I might have rolled out the carpet too quickly. (laughs) Awkward moment, right? John the Baptist, he sends his disciples. This is in Luke chapter seven. It says this. When the men reached him, that's the men, the disciples of John the Baptist reaching Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, so awkward question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, did boss miss it? (laughs) Did he misidentify the savior of the world? Keep reading. Verse 21, at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. What's Jesus thinking about when he sends this report back to John the Baptist? Isaiah 35, it's almost like he's saying, has the person who's been discipling you read Isaiah 35? Because if he read Isaiah 35 and he lays that over against my life, I'm doing all the stuff Isaiah said I would do when I got here. Check out the deaf, the ones who used to be deaf. Check out the blind, they used to be blind. Now they can see the dead are raised, doing all the stuff that Isaiah said Messiah would do and bringing life where there was only death. How do you you know if you've made contact with the real Jesus? I think the answer is Isaiah chapter 35. I think the answer is you start seeing things you didn't see before. Places that felt dead in your life are suddenly alive by God's grace. There's change, there's transformation. The song Amazing Grace, it's not just something you parrot. It's It's your personal biography. I was lost and now I'm found, I was blind, now I see I was dead, now I'm alive, everything's different, everything's coming into focus and to clarity. You you find yourself experiencing, not not just experiencing the strength that is talked about here in verse four, but you catch yourself in the act of giving it away. You catch yourself saying to those with anxious hearts, hey, be strong, do not fear, Trust in God. Look, this kind of overflowing life, it's, it's suggestive of transformation that God has brought about in your heart. It's an evidence of God's grace. 
Isaiah 35, it's a promise that when God comes to dwell with us, his rescue feels like water in the desert. It feels like life where there was death. Second, it feels like strength for the weary. And third, it feels like home. It feels like home for those whose feet are tired of wandering. What wonderful gifts for the world, right? Life, strength, home. You can't know home outside of God. You can't know joy outside of fellowship with God. We, we, we can't strike on our own, live our own independent life away from God and find joy. It's found in Christ. It's wrapped up in Messiah. He delivers that. He makes those things possible. Augustine said in the fourth century, great theologian, And he said, Lord, you have so made us, this was in his confessions, this was a prayer of his, you have so made us that we cannot even rest except we rest in you. This is in your notes. He brings the exiled home and gives them songs. He brings the exiled home and gives them songs. Look again with me at verse eight. A road will be there and a way It will be called the holy way. Some have translated that a highway of holiness. The holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there. No vicious beast will go upon it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. There's good news and bad news wrapped up in Christmas. There's good news and bad news wrapped up in those three verses. The good news is, by the grace of God, there's a road home. There's a way back to God for those who have strayed away from God, and that is what we have done. We left home. We we traded God's fatherly care for our own independence, and we sinned against God. Apostle Paul says we've fallen short of God's glory. Look, the story of the prodigal son, which is so well known to so many of us, the story of the prodigal son is the story of the world. It's the story of human history. So the good news is there's a way that leads back home to God. The bad news is, in this very same passage, the unclean can't travel on it. So it's almost like it gives you good news and then it takes it away. It gives you good news with the right hand and then takes it away with its left hand. Good news, there's a road home. Bad news, you can't travel on it unless you're morally pure. And we're not morally pure. You know, think of um, the HOV lane. It's not just an extra lane, right? Even though some of you have treated it that way, probably. And you need to confess that and get that right, right? So... It's not just another lane. You have to qualify to use that lane. You have to meet certain conditions to use that lane. If you're only one person in your car and you're in the HOV lane, you're supposed to get pulled over. Right? So that's the reality of it. You can't get in the HOV lane unless you have passengers. Well, you, you can, but you shouldn't, right? Here's the thing about Isaiah 35. Um, it's not just that you won't You know, the promise is that the unrighteous won't travel there. You can't get on this road that leads home to God unless you're righteous. 
In other words, it's not going to happen. It's prevented by a holy God. The name of the highway is Holiness Highway. You can't get on that highway if you're unholy. But then there's good news again. (laughs) You know, it gives you good news, then it takes it away, and then it gives it back to you. Because here's what it says. The unclean will not travel on it. Bad news. Fools will not wander on it. That's bad news. But the end of verse 9. But the redeemed will walk on it. So wait, who's this third category of people? Who are these lucky redeemed ones who get to travel on the road that leads home to God? Look, in the Old Testament, if, if you got deep in debt and, if, and you couldn't get yourself out, they had what was called a kinsman redeemer. A member of your family could get you off the hook. They could represent you because they shared the same family name. And they could pay your debts off and you'd go free because you had a kinsman redeemer. And Jesus comes on the scene, and it's one of his names. He's called our Redeemer. Another metaphor that's sometimes used for this same idea is the metaphor of ransom. And Jesus said to clarify his purpose in this world, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to pay off the debts of people deep in debt who couldn't get out of it. The church has sung for years these words, He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's the good news. That's the story of the gospel. The answer to the question, how do unholy people get onto holiness highway that leads to home in God? Enter Jesus, the lamb who was slain to take away our sin, the one who paid a ransom to get us out of debt before a holy God. What is the ministry of Jesus in the gospels? What is he doing? It's in your outline. Jesus finds lost sheep, brings them home, and gives them joy. He's finding lost sheep, he's bringing them home, he's giving them joy. His feet hit the floor, he's looking for lost sheep. He wants to bring them home, he wants to give them joy. Think about the story of Jesus. So he enters our exile. He embraces it, right? He becomes our substitute. Even think about the birth of Jesus itself. He's born on the road. He's born in exile. His life begins in exile, continues in exile. He says, for example, to his disciples, you want to follow after me? He said, the son of man doesn't have any place to lay his head. His life begins in exile and his life ends in exile. You think about the end of Jesus' life in connection with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement in the Old Testament. What happened on Yom Kippur? The priest would lay his hands on a goat and he would transfer and confess the sin of the people and transfer that to the animal, and then he would open the gates of the city and drive the animal out to die in the wilderness. And what happened at the end of Jesus' life? He is the Lamb of God, and our sins are transferred to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Our sin was transferred to him and then the gate of Jerusalem was opened and Jesus the Christ was driven out to be crucified outside the city limits. And what did he say from the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you driven me out? Why have you expelled me? The answer is Substitution. 
The answer is he's being your redeemer. The answer is he's out there outside the city limits paying your ransom. The apostles answer that question back. They say, here's what's going on. He's enduring rejection so we could know God's acceptance. That's what's happening out there, right? He's suffering death so we could receive life. He knows poverty so we could enjoy the riches of God's grace. He's cast out so we can come home. That's the story of the good news. Everything that Jesus endured in his life wasn't accidental. Limitation, humiliation, poverty, thirst, hunger, homelessness, rejection, abandonment. He endured all of it for the sake of our redemption. He paid the price so that you, by believing in his name, could be placed on the road leading home. You know, my family, we have... um, one of our pastimes is read aloud books. And so over the course of years, I've read a number of books out loud to our family. A lot of times we'll do this on road trips. We'll be on a road and, and Paula will drive and I'll get in all the way in the way back of the van and I'll just read forward so everybody can hear me. And we'll go and usually at some point my speech will start to slur. That means I'm falling asleep. And so I'll usually catch some shade from the people in the front rows of the vans. They're making fun of me because I'm falling asleep while I'm reading. So I'll take a little nap. Then I'll wake back up, and then I'll read through the rest of the book. Little by little, we'll climb through book after book. Well, we've read through a number of books, some of the great, great literature of the world. Wonderful, wonderful stories, one after another. And these stories, as you might expect, are poignant beautifully written stories, many of them touching and even moving. And I I have effectively repressed my emotions for dozens of read-aloud books until, until the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane. I read that book from the back seat, and once I got to the end of the story, I stopped. And I think the family might have thought I had fallen asleep again. And so after a few seconds of silence, all of them turned around, and when they turned around, my eyes were totally full of tears. There was no way to hide it, and the embarrassing part about, is it, the embarrassing part about it is that this is a story about a toy rabbit. Um, you know, my wife was like, all the stories about like real human beings, and you've never cried, and now it's the one about the China rabbit that just totally, you know, looses the fountains. It's hugely embarrassing, right? Well, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing about that story is it beautifully threads in this motif of home. Matter of fact, the very last word in the book is the word home. Some of the great literature of the world, even in the ancient world, in antiquity, some of the great themes that they were playing on were these themes of home, You read Wendell Berry, close your eyes, pick up a Wendell Berry book, and there's this beautiful thread of home. Read Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, and there's this son named Jack, and he's bent on destroying himself, and home is stubbornly whispering to him through the entire book. Christmas is God with us. Christmas is God calling us, come here, come home stubbornly whispering against our intentions on self-destruction and God just keeps whispering, come home. I love the fact that the people aren't just coming home in Isaiah 35. They're coming home doing something. What are they doing? They're singing their way back to Zion. They're singing their way 
all the way home. Max Lucado tells a story in one of his books several years ago about a Brazilian, 14-year-old Brazilian girl named Christina. And she had seen a magazine cover of beautiful women and she had been blessed with a beautiful face. And she saw that magazine cover and she dreamed of a day when she could leave her little village and her pallet on the floor that she slept on and her no running water house. And she dreamed of life in the city and being dolled up and just made beautiful. She was tired of poverty and so she ran away. 14 years old, she ran away and she broke her mother's heart. And her mother knew what life on the street could be for her beautiful young daughter. And so her mother, whose name was Maria, went to a photo booth and took a picture of herself. And then she made as many copies as she could afford to make. She made multiple copies of that picture. And then she got a bus token and went to Rio de Janeiro. And she went to all the seediest places in Rio de Janeiro and she posted her picture. And she put it in in motel bulletin boards and she put it in bathroom stalls and in bathroom mirrors and clubs in the city. And then she couldn't afford any more photos and so she went back to the village and she waited. And several weeks later, Christina, her daughter, 14 years old, was walking down the stairs of one of those seedy motels and she was tired and she had been broken already and she was used and and there was no life left in her eyes. And she looked across that lobby in that motel and she saw a picture of her mom. And she walked over and she took it down and she turned it and on the back she found these words. Christina, whatever you've done, whatever has happened, it doesn't matter. Come home. And she did. There are thousands of ways to stray from God. And there's only one way home, through Jesus. He pays it all. He covers everything that went wrong. Let me ask you the question. I don't know who's in this room. Have you strayed from God? Are you tired? Maybe I should say it this way. Are you tired yet? It's Christmas 2018. What a perfect time to come home. You couldn't pick a better day to come home. You know, the story of redemption is sometimes broken into four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That tells the whole story. Creation, everything was right, how it all began. We were made by God. We lived under his full love and security and acceptance. Fall, how it all went wrong. We struck out on our own, right? We bolted. We left the house. Redemption. Jesus came. He pointed the way back home and he provided the way back home through his work on the cross. And then restoration. He makes all things new for the humble and the broken who run to him for salvation. That's the story of redemption. That's the whole story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In a way, we could change the labels though. And instead of saying the story of redemption is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, we could label it this way. Here's the story of the world. Home, losing home, finding home, welcome home. That's the grace of God. That, that's Christmas. Jesus is saying to you, in and through the gospel, 
Whatever you've done, doesn't matter. Come home. Doesn't matter what a mess you've made. Doesn't matter what's happened. Come home. Why, why not today, right? Why, why not come home now? Do it before... Do it before the end of the holidays. Do it before you go return back to where you live. Do it before the night is out. Come home to God. Look, Christmas is not some sentimental holiday, some story that we tell when the lights are on outside and the trees up in the living room. It's not some sentimental story, right, that's only relevant one month out of the year. Christmas has a voice. Isaiah 35 gives Christmas a voice. And what does Christmas say with its voice? It says to every person in this room, come home. Come home. Come home to God. 